Well, the Bible is filled with amazing stories, isn't it? We've learned that in the last few weeks. Uh, not all of them are easy to understand, and some of them are downright strange. But they all work their way into God's bigger story. Even the obscure and the bizarre stories are communicating to us something we need to know about God. Chara Donahue is a freelance writer who wrote the article about ten unpreached sermons upon which this series is based. I used the titles she provided in the article and I've preached the sermons in the order that she listed them. That brings us to part nine already, believe it or not. The kid who needed some coffee, but instead got a miracle. Our unusual story for today takes us to the book of Acts, chapter 20, uh, verses 7 to 12. Six verses, you can turn there in your Bible. We've met some, some fun Bible characters in this series, some of which were unfamiliar to many prior to the ten unpreached sermons. People like Gehazi, Ehud, Eglon, Korah, Rizpah, Athaliah, Joash, Jehoiada, and the list continues today with a, with a name of uh, an, an, a name unrecognizable to most, Eutychus. Eutychus was a young member of a burgeoning Christian community there in Troas. Troas was a city located in the northwest corner of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and the congregation there was growing, and there was a Holy Ghost movement happening there. They happen every so often, it seems, those revival-type movements. They eventually become known by a catchphrase like the Great Awakening or the Urban Revival, the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival, or more recently, the Charismatic Movement of the late 1960s, early 1970s. It seems every generation experiences a mighty move of God. Perhaps we're due for one as we head into 2019. Eutychus was a young man caught up in just such a revival. And as we pick up our story, Eutychus is perched in a third-story windowsill as the Apostle Paul preaches on into the night. Great story. Follow along with me. Verse 7, Acts chapter 20. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, or ready to depart the next day. And he continued his speech until midnight. I would like you to take note of that. And there were many lights in the upper chamber. Interesting little side light there. There were many lights in the upper chamber. I think it's a reminder to us that it's, it's night, it's dark, uh, and they were where they were gathered together. Verse 9, And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, again, I would like you to take note of that, he sunk down with, with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. 
And Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When Paul therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, then he left. Verse 12, they brought the young man alive and they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were very comforted. Eutychus is the kid who needed some coffee, but instead got a miracle. We've all sat through sermons that taxed our attention spans. But typically, we're not dangling from a third-story window like Eutychus. The story ends with a great miracle of resurrection, so it's surprising that we don't hear about it a little more often. Uh, maybe the reason is, maybe the reason it's unpreached is pastors want to avoid telling a story about how a long sermon killed someone. Now, I, I have a philosophy about people sleeping during my sermons, and I'm sure you're interested in this. Uh, first of all, let me, let me say this. I'm absolutely, positively not offended in the least bit when someone hits the snooze during the sermon. I actually love the fact that you're comfortable here. It, it's a long week. So for many of you, you, you work hard, the job, the kids, the stress of life can be a drain. I get it. You come on a Sunday and the sanctuary is a, is a place of refuge. Here, life seems to slow down. It's warm, your chair's comfortable, we turn down the lights and your brain begins to relax. I get it. Second, there are many extenuating circumstances. We have some here that work midnights. I worked midnights for the last 11 of my 24 years at Georgia Pacific. <clears throat> You'd be surprised what I see from up here, by the way. But I worked, I worked midnights for the last 11 of my 24 years at Georgia Pacific. And it would be perfectly reasonable and understanding, understandable for these people to go home after a long night of working on the railroad or a grueling shift at the hospital. But they're here. They're in church. Some have talked to me and, and have apologized, but they just want to be in church. They see it as important to be in church. And, and to that I say, Bless your heart. I work midnight. I get it. Yeah, let's hear it for those guys. And then there are those on medication. Some battle chronic pain, chronic illness, and they take medication. Sometimes the medication causes drowsiness. You get into this environment, you begin to relax, and the next thing you know, you miss two blanks in the sermon outline, or your wife is elbowing you in the ribs because you're beginning to slip into the rapid eye movement stage of deep sleep. Listen, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I'm amazed with you, actually. I'm amazed you're here at all. Uh, you cared enough to come. I have absolutely nothing to complain about. 
And I think God inspired the story of Eutychus for the sake of pastors. I mean, how can I feel bad if you snooze once in a while during my sermon when the annals of holy writ record some guy sneaking Z's while the great apostle Paul waxes eloquent? But why do we preach long? Let's answer that question. One question pastors need to ask themselves is, how long should your sermon be? And that's a great question. George Burns said, the secret to a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and have those two things as close together as possible. (laughs) I I used to talk to an aging Catholic priest who, who has since passed away. And he could not believe that my sermons were 25 to 30 minutes long. And I would answer, at first I was gracious and I wouldn't say much. Finally I got to the point where I said, well, my theory is that sermonettes breed Christianettes. But the answer to how long your sermon should be is another question. How long can you hold their attention? Why do pastors preach long? We preach long because we have a lot to say. I'm a big believer the introduction is vital. It creates the mood, it sets the stage, it primes the pump, it tills the soil of our heart and our mind as we begin to move into receiving mode. I love the introduction. It's often the fun part of a sermon. But in the process of ruthlessly pruning a message, it's material from the introduction that most often winds up on the cutting room floor. The body of the message is the most important. We, we, we have a lot to say. And most pastors realize, most pastors realize, you cannot say it all in one sermon. Another reason we preach long is that backfill is often necessary to make a coherent point, especially in the era where not everybody knows the Bible. Go back a couple generations and you were preaching to an audience that knew the Bible. Even if they weren't regular church attenders, they they were familiar with the Bible. It's very different today. So you have to tell the story. Typically, you have to work from the lowest level of Bible IQ in the building. It's a challenge to try and inspire A 30-year Christian who has taught Sunday school and read the Bible countless times and still not lose the interest of a first-time guest who's never picked up a Bible before. That's a a wide swath for a pastor to minister to. So we have to backfill. We have to fill in the gaps so that we're telling a coherent story. Then you have to try to take that Bible story and connect it to life in 2018. When you're you're preaching on the naked prophet or Saul and the sorceress of Endor, that can take some doing. But mostly we preach long because we desperately want to reach people. We have your attention, we have you in the room, and pastors see that as a great opportunity. And sometimes... It's hard to let it go. I have to remind myself, and and, uh, this is really true, I have to remind myself that my perspective is different than yours. For me, 
This is where I'm heading all week long. This is all I'm thinking about, probably to a fault. I eat, drink, and sleep the preaching of the gospel. I'm thankful for a wife who tries to keep me on level ground, but in all honesty, this is what makes me tick. It's in me to do this. So when someone tells me they won't be in church on Sunday, on the outside I'm like, oh, hey, that's wonderful, good for you, have a nice time out at the campground. But on the inside I'm like, what? Don't you realize that this is the message that could change the world as we know it? And I know I'm goofy about this stuff. I, I realize that. I really do. I, I just feel like every message is the message that somehow will change the world. My, my perspective is, is, is different. I, I get that. The times at the end of the service when I present an opportunity for people to respond are hard for me to let go of. It always feels as if I'm standing at a precipice. To me, life and death hang in the balance and it's hard to let it go and it all takes time so we preach long the toughest part of sermon preparation to me anyway is what I call the ruthlessly pruning stage you have all these words that are all important vital in my puny mind and not enough time and so you have to eliminate some. A pastor was preparing his sermon, and as his, his little boy was watching as he jotted down notes on a yellow legal pad, and after watching for a while, the, the little boy said, Dad, how do you know what to preach? And the dad says, well, God tells me, son. And the little boy thought for a minute, and then he said, well, how come you're crossing stuff out? And that's the preacher's dilemma. It's called ruthlessly pruning. And sometimes it actually hurts. But that's my perspective. Now let me look a little bit from your perspective. Here's a list, so I'm trying to be helpful, of how to survive boring sermons. Now, in order to get help with this, I enlisted a few from the congregation uh, guys that I would consider to be experts. I texted them. They texted me back some responses. Some of those are included in here. A list of, we like lists, how to survive boring sermons. Uh, first of all, may, this is going to make, make the sun reflect off your watch into the preacher's face. That's fun. One guy told me that when he, this is one of our guys now, told me that when he was young, he would sit in the back of the church and count the bald heads. How to survive boring sermons. Try to start the wave. Yeah. <laughs> Fake demon possession after the introduction. That would liven things up. Text people you know are in church and see if they reach for their phone. <laughs> Have a joy buzzer in your hand during greeting time. That almost makes me want to reinstitute greeting time. Replace the organist sheet music with staying alive. <laughs> and this was actually submitted by one of our core people, which is disturbing. 
He says that when he was younger, he would look at the pastor through his jacket sleeve like a telescope. <laughs> so, so imagine being the pastor up here, and there's somebody with their... Try to get others in church involved in a game of words with friends. Try a variation of the old license plate travel game. Listen for your preacher to say a word beginning with A and then B and try to make it all the way through the alphabet. Trying to help here. How about this one? Start the chant. USA. USA. Start from the back of church and try to crawl under the chairs all the way to the front without being detected. I think Myra's done it. Try to indicate to the minister that his fly is undone. <laughs> Wiggle your ears so that the person behind you will notice. That's fun. And uh, the last one, which I've seen many of you do, practice smiling insincerely. So. <laughs> Long, boring sermons. I, I know, you know, I get it. My heart goes out to you. I get, I, this is true. I actually get tired of listening to myself sometimes. And you think I'm joking, but that's actually true. But here's what I want to do today. I want to take a brief look at the end of our story there in Acts chapter 20 about Eutychus. He needed a cup of coffee to help him stay awake. Instead, he got a miracle. We're back in Acts 20. Verse 10 says, And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, his life is still in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and, and, ta- and, this, this, and, and he talked a long while again. I mean, he preaches so long that a guy falls asleep, falls out the third story window. Paul goes down, revives him. They bring him back up. And to Paul, this is just intermission. <laughs> Preach till the break of day. And then he left. They brought the young man alive and they were excited that he was revived. One of the cardinal doctrines of the assemblies of God is our belief in divine healing. It, it does not in any way, let me say this, our belief in divine healing does not in any way diminish or deny the wonderful medical profession of which we have many here or technology, or the advances in medication, all the things available to us today in the field of medicine and science. In fact, I thank God for those things. The Bible teaches that it rains on the just and the unjust, and that the sun shines on the good and on the evil. The medical profession, I believe, is an example of God's mercy on both the just and the unjust. But ultimately, we believe God is our healer. Only God can work a miracle. Only God can change the natural order of things. Only God can still the storm. Only God can part the Red Sea. Only God can create a soul. Only God can take a heart of stone and change it to a heart of flesh. Doctors and nurses and medicine can help create a situation conducive for health, but only God can heal a body. He's the great physician. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? 
And sometimes we forget all that's available to us as a believer. Psalm 103 reminds us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And hear me now, church, and forget not His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Lillian Yeomans is an MD, a medical doctor, who wrote a book called Healing from Heaven. She begins chapter 2 of her book with these words. I believe one of the great hindrances to healing. Let's stop there and think about what we're reading now. I believe one of the great hindrances to healing is the absence of a certain definite knowledge of God's will. There is lurking in most everyone who has not properly studied God's Word a feeling that God may not be willing and that we have to persuade Him to heal us. Jeremiah, the great prophet of old, said, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. There's something I like about the simplicity of that. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. There are some great promises found in the Word of God. Way, way too many for me to list them here. But the verses that teach divine healing run all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. And if it says it in the Bible, it's as good as gold. If it says it in the Bible, you can take it to the bank. For all the promises of God in Him, 2 Corinthians says, are yea and in Him Amen unto the glory of God. In Exodus 15, 26, it says, I am the Lord that heals thee. 1 Peter 2, 24 tells us about Jesus who His own self bare our sins in His own body on a tree on the cross that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And yet some would minimize the idea of healing. Though it's undeniably included, healing is, in the work of the cross. And when we do, when we minimize the healing aspect of the cross, we're rendering the Word of God impotent through our unbelief. We're committing the fatal sin of subtracting from the Holy Scriptures. Either the Bible is true, Or it isn't. But what it definitely is not is a smorgasbord where you can pick and choose what you like and skip the rest. You get the whole kit and caboodle or you get nothing. And this is the second week in a row I've said kit and caboodle in a sermon. (laughs) That ought to count for something. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He clearly said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him that sent me. So, So what did He do? He preached the gospel. He cast out demons. And He healed the sick. The will of the Father. Mark 1, it's actually 40 and 41, says, And there came a leper to Him beseeching Him, 
Picture this now. When you read your Bible, you do well to put yourself into the story. To not just read the words, which is easy to do, we drift into that. But put yourself in the story. See this, live it, experience it as best you can. So picture this. There came a leper to Jesus, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him. He said, if, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. And he said, I will. What lie did we buy into that said God wants us sick? As believers, we have authority. It's not the name it and claim it stuff. That's a distortion. But we can most certainly stand upon the promises of God. John 14, 12 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do, hear me now, church, the works that I do, Jesus said, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. What, what, did, what did he do? What, what works did he do? He, he, he preached the gospel, he cast out demons, and he healed the sick. We've been, we've been given authority, but really believing we have the authority seems to be the problem. Mark 9.23, Jesus said unto them, If you can believe, all things are possible. To who? To them that believe. We believe in divine healing. And so we pray. So how do we pray? First of all, we, we agree together. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you shall agree on earth, and we're going to have prayer for healing here in a little bit. So how do we pray? We agree together. Uh, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them by my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So, what is it that brings us here today? We're all so different, aren't we? We, we have different jobs. We, we live in different neighborhoods, different parts of town. We come from various socioeconomic backgrounds. We vary in age. We vary in experiences. We vary in education. But we're all gathered here today in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's an environment that's ripe for a miracle. We gather in the name of Jesus and we agree together in prayer. Second, we lay on hands. How do we pray? We agree together. Second, we lay on hands. Luke 11, I'm sorry, Luke 13, beginning in verse 11, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and he said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So we lay hands 
on the sick. We also anoint with oil. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, is any sick among you? And I don't know if you can get a clearer verse than this of how it's to be done. Is any sick among you? Then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And what will happen? The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual and fervent prayer, the Bible says, of a righteous man availeth much. Mark 6.13 They cast out many devils and they anointed with oil many that were sick. And he healed them. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Oil, anointing with oil is a, a biblical pattern that reminds us it's God and not us that heals. We agree in prayer. We lay on hands. We anoint with oil. You know, there's a lot I don't understand about healing. I certainly don't have all the answers. I don't have all the hows. I know for sure I don't have all the whys. I do know what the Bible says. We've seen God work. We've seen bodies healed. We've seen changed hearts. We've seen souls saved right here in the Twin Ports. Right here in this sanctuary. It happened in Bible times, and guess what? It happens today. And it happens here. Now one thing that we need to do is to begin to speak the language of faith. We unconsciously confess what we believe. I mean what we really believe, not what we say we believe. We unconsciously confess what we believe. Out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says the mouth speaks. That's why we often hedge our bets in prayer. Right? We need to lay hold of the Word of God. We need to speak the language of faith. And, and what does faith say? Faith says, according to, first, according to Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then this final thought before we pray. Eutychus was resurrected physically. It was a miracle. We can also be resurrected spiritually. Perhaps the greatest miracle of all is salvation. But salvation and healing are both provided for in the cross. Jesus saved and Jesus healed. Salvation and healing are both part of the gospel, right? Now think of this. We never pray, God, help Joe to be saved if it's your will. Now why don't we pray that way? Because we know it's God's will for Joe to be saved, right? But we often say, God, heal Joe if it's your will. Can we just eliminate that from our thinking? Can we just eliminate that from our vocabulary? Let's, let's pray this morning, 
believing. Let's pray the promises of God. Let's believe God is who He says He is. And let's believe that God will do what He says He will do. I've asked some people to be our prayers today. I would like them to make their way to the front. There's anointing oil here. Would you uh, make sure you grab one of those and, and anoint people with oil as you pray? And I exhort you, prayers. I exhort you to pray the prayer of faith. Pray the word. Pray believing. Believe that that God is who He says He is. Believe that God will do what He what He says He will do. Before I have you come forward, I want to pray for our prayers. How about that? Lord, I thank you for these folks that are here this morning to pray. Lord, I pray that you would pour into them faith and assurance that the word of God is true, that you are who you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do. Lord, I believe you can heal broken bodies. I believe you can mend broken hearts. I believe you can heal those that are riddled with cancer those that battle chronic illness or, or chronic injury, Lord, I believe you can, you can heal that today. You can heal that today, right here, right now. Lord, we ask that you would touch those that are hurting today. And as they make their way forward, for whatever the need, Lord, I pray that you would hear from heaven and you would answer and you would be glorified and you would be exalted. And Lord, that that revival that we talked about would begin to spread through our neighborhood, through our community, through the Twin Ports. And people would know that there is still a God in heaven and he loves us. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have worship time now. While we're playing, while we're singing, would you come and be prayed for? If you have a need in your life, make yourself available to the work of God.